we talk about 48 hours. Within that first 48 hours, at the very tail end of that, it would be appropriate to begin light exercise, walking, stationary biking, whatever would engage this individual, submerging them in you know, chest deep water and letting them walk there if that's therapeutic and engaging for them. The awareness of concussion has really risen in the last few years, particularly short-term and long-term impacts. Today, we had Mike Studer on. Now, he practices in Oregon. He was recognized as Clinician of the Year in geriatric and neurological fields. And he covered to us that assessment of concussion, how to do rehab of concussion, but also how to build a little bit of a buffer for the future. This was really interesting podcast to me. I feel empowered to at least be able to start helping people who might present with this condition in the clinic. Mike's also done a master class for us where you can go a little bit deeper you can try that for free in the show notes there's a lot of value in this one please enjoy it my name is michael risk and this is physio explained hey welcome mike and thank you for joining us michael i'm glad to be here thank you we're talking about concussion today and you've done a master class for us at physio network we're going to put that master class in the show notes, which people can try for free. And we want to kick this off with some myths. So could you cover maybe the one to three most common myths around concussion and and what we've learned since? Oh, wow. I'm so excited that you've kicked it off with that, Michael. I'll tell you, probably the number one myth about concussion is actually one that most all of us have held at some point in our lives. And that is that concussion is not a brain injury, right? We've almost all heard, if we're old enough, that, oh, you know, he just got his bell rung, or he just had a stinger, or he's seeing stars. And we talk about this in different terms in different languages and countries, but now we know that concussion truly is a brain injury. And it's a mild traumatic brain injury, but that would be number one. Number two, I would say, and I'll probably leave you with two, is that once an individual has a concussion, Michael, that these individuals need to be relegated to a dark room without any television and sounds, without any stimuli and et cetera. And it seems as though we probably swung the pendulum maybe just a little bit too far to protect these individuals because now we're understanding the benefits and virtues of light activity, light exercise, moderated stimuli, vision, sound, et cetera. Because we've begun to realize there's a therapeutic effect of exercise. And the other thing about that is that we realize completely shielding someone from all of these stimuli causes them to have a rebound effect so that when they are exposed, they're hypersensitive. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know about the rebound effect. So, and it's, it's almost paralleling what we're learning everywhere else in the body, right? We can't just shield a tendon or shield a joint. Has this happened from newer research, Mike, or is this the awareness I'm seeing it at at high-level sports, so maybe the awareness is rising, or has it been a bit of both? Yeah, it's really actually both. So this was a brand-new concept at the 2016 Berlin World Conference on Concussion, but even as early as the 2012 World Conference on Concussion in Zurich, This was absolutely not a consideration. So only starting in 2016 did the experts in concussion begin to consider these matters. And then really it's a matter of disseminating awareness, building on evidence that all happened simultaneously from there. 
Yeah. And so take me into the clinic now. So I'm imagining we've got listeners who are in a musculoskeletal practice and they might not deal at the elite level, but certainly have uh, sports participants. What's the first thing they should do if they're feeling like their patient has sustained a concussion? And maybe this could lead into, could you describe a bit of an assessment process that clinicians could go through? Wow. Another great question. So probably the first move is determine what subtype or what phenotype, either term is fine, of concussion the individual that you're working with is presenting with. So those subtypes or phenotypes of concussion can come in basically either five or seven different subtypes, depending on the research that you're reading, but they're all pretty much in agreement. And that would be absolutely step one. Then keeping in mind that an individual doesn't just have to have one subtype, right? So if we were to round those out, Michael, we'd be talking basically about cognitive, oculomotor, affect. So my personality's been changed, headache, exertional, cardiovascular, and vestibular. And that's probably the most widely accepted seven different phenotypes. And to answer your question, that is formidably step one, because when I can define the subtype, then my treatment can be accurate. Is there a, I I might skip down, but we were going to talk about uh, how do clinicians get started in this space? Is that something that an everyday clinician can do an assessment on by downloading a tool? Is it an app? Is it a, a scale or a questionnaire? There are developing questionnaires on this, and there are some questionnaires that are just now becoming so sophisticated that the psychometrics are beginning to, and there's nothing that's perfect out there yet, Michael, beginning to be able to say, okay, if your patient answers these questions, then they have this subtype. And if they answer these questions as positive, they have this subtype. So, you know, if I talk with you again in six months from now, I'll be able to say, oh yeah, these two tools can discriminate the subtypes. Right now, we're not quite there, but watch for something coming out of the University of Pittsburgh with lead authors of probably Sue Whitney, W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, And that's where I'm going to be watching for the best scale to come from very soon. Yeah, that's awesome. Great info. And if someone is listening to this now and they want to, they want to get what's available for their clinic, is is there a place they can go to find these assessments that do exist? Yeah. So I'll tell you, learn about the subtypes right now through an article that actually speaks to the seven subtypes with the acronym Coaches CV. So it's C, just spell the word coaches, C-O-A-C-H-E-S, and then the letters CV as in resume, curriculum vitae. That is probably the number one article that I would look at right there so that a clinician can become familiarized and can begin to examine those appropriately themselves. Because then you're actually saying, all right, I'll know how to screen oculomotor. I'll do a cranial nerve test. I'll ask my patient if they're having difficulty with headaches. I'll ask my patient and perhaps their caregiver about changes in affect. If once you're familiar with the different subtypes, then I think clinicians won't necessarily need to be guided yet Mm. with an app or a tool 
And those sophistications will come with increased body of knowledge. But right now, just becoming familiar is a big leap. I'm really excited because this feels like an emerging field where there's still a lot of development, but also really impactful for someone's future health. And when those two things merge, there's a lot of excitement around it and a lot of energy behind it too. If someone comes to the clinic and we're suspecting a concussion, you've mentioned in other podcasts, these three stages that we might go through. What would you advise a, a young clinician do if they're suspecting a concussion through stages one, two, and three? Really, I would take a look at uh, the individual's tolerance to exercise first, because I'd want to be able to determine this individual's readiness to begin light exertion, moderate exertion. And I'd want to be able to find out real quickly, especially if it's an athlete that's been concussed, how can I get them and how soon can I get them re-engaged in something that's so passionate? So that's going to really help me progress this individual stage one, two, three, because we all know that people will improve best if they're doing something that's engaging to them and that they can participate with a little bit of intensity. So that would be step number one is I would clearly define tolerance to exertion. Step two is I would try to find out what are triggering environments and stimuli that causes this individual's concussion symptoms to emerge. And once I know about the individual's triggering stimuli, then I can learn how to introduce those in a systematic fashion and what to stay away from so that I can be truly therapeutic in my relationship with this patient. Hey, I'll protect you. I know that bright lights is getting you. Loud sounds is getting you. We'll have them turn the music down in the clinic. So I really want to know about triggers is my step two. Is there a protection phase that that we might need to go through? Like we spoke about the myth of being in a dark room. Is there any place for that at the beginning? Yep. We talk about 48 hours. Mm. Within that first 48 hours, at the very tail end of that, it would be appropriate to begin light exercise, walking, stationary biking, whatever would engage this individual, submerging them in you know chest deep water and letting them walk there if that's therapeutic and engaging for them. So it's really that 48 hours of protection. It's not two to three weeks in a dark room and never go to school and don't get back on the playing field and don't drive and et cetera. So it's, it's really much shortened and it's facilitated by a return to light exercise. How do we know that someone is ready to go back to their sport. Do they need to be completely symptom-free or is there like an acceptance of some symptoms? Yeah, that is a really good question. And it may lead us into the other conversation that we talk about today in terms of dual tasking and efforts to return to sport. Because no matter what the stimulus is, exertion, exposure to light, exposure to sound, pressure, cognitive pressure, stress of tests or stress of the playing field. The critical decision-making point, Michael, is will the individual tolerate exposure to one of these stimuli or environments at a level that we can remove them from the exposure and their symptoms go all the way back to where they started before we exposed them? So are they ready to return is an equation of How much can they tolerate that this environment has to offer 
And how do their symptoms continue to persist when I've removed them out of that situation? Or does this provoke their symptoms at all? Meaning, okay, you're going to try a quiet pitch, maybe on the rugby field or football field, all right? And you're going to run as hard as you can from one end to the other. Your teammates are not there. There's no crowd there. It's nice ambient temperature. You're not overheated. And you can do a full-out sprint. And what symptoms do you have when you're completing that sprint? Okay, that stimulates your headache, your nausea, your dizziness, etc. So there we go. If it only stimulates it up one or two points, and as soon as that you are done with that effort, you can return back to your baseline normal. Now we look at actually systematically getting you back toward that sport. And then we could add in the other layers of teammates, people to run around, move around, coaches shouting instructions at you, people in the crowd, pressure of the situation. And then, you know, really that's where we begin to talk about dual tasking as well. And when I introduce the rest of the stimuli, Michael, is this individual to the point, and this is what I like to say, are they just whelmed or are they overwhelmed, right? To say that there is such a term as whelmed. Well, we don't want somebody to be overwhelmed. It's never therapeutic for the brain to be exposed and then to be symptomatic and stay symptomatic. There is the, oh, that's too much critical threshold. The MSK physio in me is thinking it sounds a lot like a tendon or a knee joint. You know, we want to monitor how they go with that stimulus, but also the next 24 to 48 hours. And then if we've got permission, we're going to add more complexity. I love that. That's exciting to me, the way we can progress that. We talk about the dual tasking and you even have mentioned you can build a buffer. So maybe they're doing okay now, but we might want some crowd noise, some lights, maybe three teammates at the same time asking for the ball, and then they have to make a decision. Could you explain more about that and how we might do that in a clinical setting or out, out on a field? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a beautiful, beautiful science, Michael, and one that similar to this consideration of phenotypes of concussion is one that's just in its infancy. And that's what's so exciting about it. So I'll tell you, here's how to make it practical for anyone that is a novice clinician or even someone who has some experience in concussion, but just doesn't know exactly where to go with dual tasking. I'll break it down and make it super, super easy. There's four categories of of concussion dual tasking that one would want to be able to be solid in their manipulation with. Here's the four categories. And these are easy because they're I put them in layman's terms so that you can actually talk with your patient about them. Okay, so the first category is hold. Meaning I'm going to give you some information and you're going to hold on to it. And now you're going to conduct your physical task of your sport. And then I'm going to ask for you to be able to give me that information back. So now you're compelled to operate. We know, you and I both know, I'm talking about working memory, right? But when we talk about it in terms of the very simple term hold, it can feel like it's a little bit more approachable and it's something I can talk with my patients about. So item one is hold and that's a dual task. I'm going to give you something, you hold on to it. And if I did it, I could say, all right, as you start this run, as soon as I say go, I'm going to actually tell you the information and then you continue the run. When we're done, you give it back to me. All right. And that is, okay, your teammates numbers are 12, 24, 17, and two. 
Give that to me at the end of the run. That would be an example of hold. Now I'm going to move on to the second one. The second one is called process. Okay, process means I've taken some information, I've manipulated it, and I have to give it back to you. All right, now here's how a practical way to do that, and let's put it in the same context as sport. Okay, so that means uh, Sarah, Janie, and Judy are on the bench right now. Of your understanding of your teammates, who is on the field with you if Sarah, Janie, and Judy are on the bench? So that means you're actually having to manipulate information. And so you totally get this, Michael. You understand that means process. But that's totally different than hold, right? Because I'm having mm. to calculate, calibrate. Okay, yeah. And process is something that that could mean you're counting backwards and subtraction. It could mean that you're having to reverse a digit span that I gave to you. But we want to make it practical. So this is something that not a lot of individuals remember in dual tasking because they don't they don't think about making it practical so they do all of their distraction work with people and they make it just very artificial all right here comes number three number three is generate all right so i'm going to tell you some tool and you tell me how many different ways to use that tool so now you have to be intuitive or maybe i say you're locked out of your house tell me how many different ways you can possibly get back in so that's generate and then the last one is recall. And so recall is not new information I just gave you. It's old information that you've had. Okay, when we played these guys last year, what was the score? So it's hold, right? Process, generate, and recall. And if we can have clinicians actually do dual tasking with their return to sport athletes that have been concussed, Using all four of these, now we've got athletes that are being rehabilitated in a comprehensive manner, Michael. And potentially building a buffer for the future, right? The buffer for the future is huge. I mean, because you guys know all of your sports and all of your athletes who dribble two basketballs so that they're better at dribbling one, who have me throw me a tennis ball while I'm also doing this dribbling the soccer ball or football, I should say. You know, that's how you build a buffer before you get injured. So you're so right about that. I know we're close on time and we've had an amazing amount of information covered. Mike, thank you so much. That is a, a really wonderful spread of information. I feel like clinicians will have some confidence around concussion, know where to get started, know what to read. And just a reminder that you've done a masterclass so people can try that in the show notes if they want to go a little bit deeper. Thank you again for your time today, Mike. Thank you, Michael.